Morgan, what's your appendix for this week? I did not prepare an appendix, Greg. Okay. See me after class. Welcome back to Densely Speaking, conversations about cities, economics, and law. My name is Greg Schill, and I'm a law professor at the University of Iowa. Here with me is Jeff Lynn. I'm Jeffrey Lynn. I'm an economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. Uh, so today on the show is spatial inequality and regulation. The dominant explanations for growing geographic inequality in the U.S. are the economic forces of globalization and agglomeration. The authors of today's paper argue, however, that this account leaves out a crucial factor, the effects of regulation. That is, regulatory choices in the domains of transportation, communications, trade, and antitrust, and how changes in those choices over the course of the 20th century drove changes in economic geography in the United States. We're pleased to have as our guests today three co-authors of a new paper, Regulation and the Geography of Inequality, forthcoming in the Duke Law Journal. These authors are Ganesh Sitaraman. Hi, Greg. It's great to be here. Morgan Ricks. Hi, Greg. Thank you for having me. And Chris Serkin. Really nice to be here, Greg. Thanks. Professors at Vanderbilt Law School and authors of this new paper. We are also pleased to be joined by guest co-host, Michelle Laser, who is a law professor at the University of Illinois College of Law. Thanks for having me. We invited Michelle for this discussion because of her past work on geographic inequality and one form of regulatory policy, or one regulatory policy lever, which is tax. She's a tax scholar. Michelle is also one of the only law professors I know who has learned her way around GIS, Geographic Information Systems Software, for which she has my eternal admiration. It is a really interesting original and at times maybe provocative paper, at least to uh, urbanist purists. Um, and I thank our guests and guest co-hosts for joining us to talk about it today. I should start by saying I loved this paper. I'm so excited when I see people really engaging with these theories and topics about the intersection of law and geography. I think if you were to poll laymen on the street, it would be very obvious to them that geography plays a huge role in our democracy, in disparities, in difference, in difference of opinion, difference of well-being, difference of culture. And law has a huge, huge, huge role in that, but there hasn't been nearly enough attention paid to it. And so I applaud this paper as a really cool, deep dive into the role that regulation has played in creating those constructs and creating those disparities between urban and rural areas. You know, I understood your argument to be a significant amount of geographic inequality really can be traced to deregulation of transportation, communication, and antitrust. And more than that, this story you tell about deregulation signals a possible way forward, right, where regulation may actually be part of the solution to the disparities that we see. I would love to hear, you know, just to begin this talk, your own kind of explanation of your argument in your paper, just to tell the audience, because it really is a, a fascinating account. Thanks so much, Michelle. I think when we started working on this paper, part of what we noticed and what really inspired it was the sense that a number of different areas of regulatory policy 
transportation regulation, communications, trade, antitrust, all had in one version of them earlier in the 20th century, a kind of design that was consciously in some cases, maybe unconsciously in others, built into them that actually encouraged geographic dispersal in different ways. And we noticed that across these different areas and thought that this was really a major factor that's missing from the debate over geographic inequality. It's a debate that normally is talked about with a lot of concern, concern about socioeconomic consequences, health disparities, economic inequality, opportunity, political challenges like the structure of the Senate or the Electoral College. There's a lot of factors that people are interested in with geographic inequality, but the responses are mostly focused on issues like zoning and in particular deregulating zoning in cities to create more concentration or on a newer, I think, approach, or at least newer in the policy space, which is place-based economics rather than people-based economics, that starts and focuses on things like tax incentives, which I know you've done a lot of work on and we can talk more about. And what we wanted to do was say that actually there's another area here. These other areas of regulation are hugely important as well. And so that's really what the paper is pushing forward, is how each of these four areas, transportation, communications, trade, and antitrust, had these kind of dispersal mechanisms built into them in the progressive and New Deal eras. And that created a real regulatory system that encouraged geographic equality. And that our suggestion is that deregulation in each of these areas coincided with this era of rising geographic inequality. And that we think this should be part of that story on how we think about what the problem is and potentially what the solutions could be too. I'm curious about how much do you think people understood the geographic implications of these regulations prior to deregulation? I think that they really did. And there's different places where you can see these kinds of arguments. You know, I'll let Morgan talk a little bit about transportation and communications maybe, but in the antitrust arena, for example, there was a long history of understanding of how consolidation was tied into geography. The place you see this really in the progressive and New Deal era is in the anti-chain store movement and an understanding that chain stores were consolidating and were ending the kind of mom and pops. And the great evil in that era was A&P. In the late 20th century, early 21st century, people talk more about Walmart, but the Walmart of the progressive era was A&P and, and was pushing out all the small businesses and with it, concentrating power, concentrating wealth at, with geographic effects. And so Part of where you see some of this, even 100 years ago, is in moves by antitrust and anti-monopoly advocates like Brandeis, who are really concerned about as one of the components for what makes a good society, a good community, a strong economy in local areas, and how antitrust is essential to those efforts. Let me add to that, and this is Morgan, just speak uh, for a moment about banking and about transportation. So geographic considerations are really central to the history of banking law in the U.S. from federal banking laws since, since the 1860s uh, and the National Bank Act, which very deliberately created a system that was designed for dispersal of credit and of banknote issuance. And if you read the, the legislative history around the National Bank Act of 1864, geographic considerations were a very important part of what the senators and congressmen were discussing at the time and the way that they organized the National Bank Act. And that, that was true 
really through sort of the mid 20th century. I mean, the Bank Holding Company Act, which is 1956, was also a way of ensuring that geographic limits on bank expansion were not arbitraged away through holding company structures. And so that started to erode and we really pretty much dismantled the geographic regulations and restrictions in banking by the 1990s. But through most of the 20th century, and indeed even the late 19th century, geographic considerations were just an important part of how we thought about banking law. And in transportation, you see the same thing. If you read the scholarship from the early 20th century on railroads, there's a very explicit understanding that railroad regulation was designed to help serve offline points that otherwise would not be served well without a legal and regulatory apparatus around the railways. So that was the way it was thought about. And I will say also, we have a quotation from Senator Robert Byrd, of all people, from West Virginia in the paper, who voted for airline deregulation in the 1970s and later came to regret that, explicitly said and called out in the Senate, I'll quote a little bit from the paper just because it's such an extraordinary statement. He says, this is one senator who regrets he voted for airline deregulation. It has penalized states like West Virginia where many of the airlines pulled out quickly following deregulations and prices zoomed into the stratosphere, doubled, tripled, and in some instances quadrupled. I admit my error. I confess my unwisdom. I am truly sorry for having voted for deregulation. So was there an understanding? Yes, there was an understanding through much of the 20th century, but I think that understanding itself began to erode and lawmakers included lost sight of the geographic purpose and the geographic effects that were present in these modes of regulation. And as Ganesh mentioned, you know, the effect of this regulatory model was really to disperse economic activity in a lot of different ways. And removing this regulatory model has been an accelerant of, of greater geographic concentration of economic activity. Just want to get in a clarification here on the nature of geographic inequality. I think you do this very well in the paper, but for our listeners, if you folks could just explain the types of geographic inequality that you identify and then which one or which ones you want to focus on. So when we talk about geographic inequality in this paper, we're really focused on regional inequality, that is inequality between the Midwest, the Northeast, inequality at this scale. We're pretty sure that there's a similar story to tell at smaller scales. But it's going to be different and different in important ways because the kinds of infrastructure we focus on and the kinds of regulatory or deregulatory policies we focus on in this paper are really concentrated or focused on the regional scale, meaning parts of the country and not communities within, say, an urban area. Again, I think there's additional work that could be done that would find a very similar story even within cities. I think about Nashville, where we all live, and the decision of the city decades ago to tear up all of the trolley car tracks that made parts of the city inaccessible, except through automobiles. I think that there are ways to talk about that also through uh, geographic effects and the consequences of regulatory choices. But that is distinct from what we are really talking about. I just add to that for listeners, two of the things that we use examples throughout the paper really are the distinction that we see and the gap that we see between superstar cities, the places like San Francisco or New York, 
and mid-sized cities like St. Louis or Memphis. And some of that's regional, but some of that's just the differences in these kinds of cities. People talk about superstar cities and these winner-take-all terms or in terms of agglomeration effects. And, and part of what we're engaging with is that distinction. The other is the gap between cities and rural areas. And that's another piece that we engage with as well, where some of these effects are important. I'd love to jump in here and just push a little bit harder on this question about what exactly geographic inequality entails. This is something that I fight with a lot in my own research, because I think for those of us who do research on geographic inequality, it feels very intuitive and we kind of know what we're talking about. But then I don't know if you experience this, but there's a lot of, well, aren't you really talking about people? Why do we care about places? Why do we care about differences between place A and place B? If the real reason why we might care is because we think that people in these places are experiencing different outcomes, why not direct our policies directly to helping those people as opposed to thinking about place through the legal framework? Why help places instead of people? So I think there are a few reasons why we want to think about this this way. The first thing that I would say is that I think the people frame is extremely narrow and actually in some ways misses the reality of how societies function, um, which is that things are not all about atomized individuals who roam around independent of a location, a community, politics. And to really just focus on people misses the rest of the social infrastructure, the community infrastructure, and the political factors that are extremely important. So just as an example of this, if we only focus on people and say income, we don't at all notice the fact that different geographies and policies that might concentrate people and wealth in, say, California lead to an extremely skewed system of democracy in which the, say, roughly 40 million people who live in California have two senators, but the less than 600,000 people in Wyoming have two senators. Now, you might say that's a political problem or a constitutional problem, but actually geography is built into our political system and our constitution. It's built into our society. And so if we want to actually engage policy problems in a fulsome way that includes all their different aspects, we're going to need to look more broadly than at one specific thing. The second thing that I'd say is that a lot of different problems may be tied up together. So you might say what we want to focus on is income inequality. Okay. But there's also significant health disparities. Well, you might say we should just focus on healthcare policy then. Sure. But there might also be education problems in different areas or job opportunity problems in different areas. So depending on what you focus on, you might have different policy outcomes and we might want to focus on all of these different things. But I think one of the benefits of thinking about geography is it allows you to see lots of different aspects of the problems that places and people face, and to think about lots of different types of solutions. And I think what we noticed and what we were excited about with the paper is that when you think in these geographic terms, instead of just in terms of people, you actually start noticing different things like the kind of dispersion elements of regulatory policy. I think back a lot about, I think we all do when we think about this, the regulatory components to the post office. One of the things about the post office was not that it was just about individuals being able to send letters to other individuals across a vast geography, which it obviously was, but that part of the benefit of the post office was commercial. And part of the benefit of the post office was democratic. It was the idea that information had to be able to be connected throughout the country in order to have a flourishing Republican form of government. 
those are all factors that intersect with each other, that overlap, and that the system of the post office, a kind of big infrastructure network, actually enabled and was deeply tied up in questions of geography given distance in how we communicate. So I think there's a value of, of taking this broader approach that moves us beyond and captures a lot that we might not see as easily if we just focus on individuals. So one of the things that I think I hear you saying is that there are a number of inequalities in outcomes that can all be kind of linked somewhat to some underlying aspect of place, right? I, I feel like that's kind of implicit in what you're saying. So I wonder if you could articulate what it is about these places that's giving rise to geographic inequality, particularly since, if I understand your argument correctly, I think it makes sense to assume that some of these geographic inequalities existed prior to our initial set of regulations, and then they returned with a vengeance upon the time of deregulation, right? So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about that. What is it about place that is leading to these varieties of unequal outcomes? Well, I think there's a few things. Part of what we try to do in the paper is suggest one factor, but it's not to say that there aren't multiple factors. I mean, we think that there are a lot of different things that have contributed to geographic inequality. We focus on these regulatory policy choices in these four areas, which really goes back to the basic sense that policy and law matters across the board and that it's really hard to actually think through anything with respect to the economy without understanding the underlying legal and policy structures that shape economic activity. But we don't deny that there are other elements that are important, including questions about agglomeration or that as a feature and other factors that are essential. So I think all of these different things are relevant. Our hope was just to add this one set of areas where we don't really think there's been as much discussion. I can add too, mostly by way of clarification, we don't mean to suggest that our goal here is true equality across regions. Inequality is always going to happen. The economy changes, different places thrive, different places are ascendant. That's natural and we would expect that to happen. Our observation though is simply that in a lot of the debates about regional inequality, and a lot of the debates about zoning, frankly, and deregulation of land use, there seems to be this sort of implicit assumption that these economic forces are entirely organic and natural and are things that we should simply be accommodating in our regulatory or more often our deregulatory choices. And our observation is, wait a second here, these are not entirely organic and natural. They are also partly and sometimes largely a product of regulatory design. And we have to focus on that and think about the places that are thriving and the places that are not thriving, not just as the result of natural agglomeration, but also this regulatory design. That's something that I found valuable about your paper. A lot of economists in thinking about growing regional divergences over the last four decades or so might point to increases in the benefits from being in certain big cities like New York or San Francisco interacted with restrictive land use policy that increases housing prices. Following the research of Jerko, Meyer, and Sinai, these two factors are interacting to separate superstar cities from lagging regions. Coming back to what's valuable about your paper, the paper goes into great detail on four particular sectors where we've seen a lot of regulatory changes where previous policies favored the dispersion of activity, whereas now they don't. 
I also thought there was an interesting dichotomy between intentional regulatory changes versus some of these changes that were less intentional, driven more by the obsolescence of old technologies and the emergence of new ones. I'd like to hear more about that. And also, it's interesting to note how the timing of these regulatory changes lines up with the timing of regional divergence that we've seen. This is Morgan. I can speak to your last point about timing to the extent that it's about a four-decade story of growing regional divergence in economic activity that more or less aligns pretty perfectly with the moment of erosion of geographic considerations and cross-subsidies within specifically the transportation infrastructure and to a somewhat lesser degree within the communications infrastructure. You know, the 1970s, late 1970s, early for railroads, but mid to late 1970s and early 1980s were the moment when the progressive era New Deal system of transportation regulation was abandoned wholesale at the federal level. And so the timing coincides. Now, we don't want to avoid overclaiming here. And as both Chris and Ganesha pointed out, we're not suggesting any kind of monocausal story here. We're not denying changes in the structure of the economy that might lend themselves to more agglomeration than previously that don't have anything to do with regulation. Those things exist. But just in terms of the timing, in terms of the story that one could tell, the era of growing geographic inequality coincides pretty well with the moment of of deregulation. I find that to be a fascinating hypothesis or observation. And one thing that struck me as maybe interesting for future research is the international comparisons, right? So the period that we're talking about also sees similar kind of effects in some countries. And um, I just don't know enough about French telecom policy to, to have an opinion on this, but you do see this core periphery relationship bringing in a lot of countries in the Anglosphere, where a lot of practices are similar, but also outside the Anglosphere. And it's not the subject of the paper, but I'm curious if you have thoughts or maybe looked at it in other contexts. So we did spend some time thinking about this, and it's an area we want to research further. We looked at transportation, regional rail in France. We looked at bus service in the UK, and we looked at the history of transportation deregulation in Canada, some of which fit the model quite well. And those are also places where we see some both growing geographic inequality and political discord arising out of growing geographic inequality. There's a sense that the Yellow Vest movement in France was born partly out of the decline of regional rail service the decline in the quality of regional rail service in France. We would agree this is an important dimension that needs further exploration. To loop back to the city's point, I want to push on that a little bit, this mid-sized cities versus supersized cities characterization. As Michelle kind of alluded to, I think we all have an intuitive sense of folks who work on this stuff, have an intuitive sense of the distinction that we're thinking about. But to kind of engraft this onto the political map of the United States, I think it might be helpful to be a little more specific. So for example, you know, Denver and St. Louis are both mid-sized cities, right? Their metro areas have almost an identical population, but in virtually every sense, they are materially different for purposes of your paper, right? Denver is growing, Denver is wealthier, St. Louis has been shrinking. And it just seemed to me that it might benefit from a little more clarity on that. And as part of that, I wondered if you thought there might be a role for immigration and pro-natalist policies to help halt decline. You talk about regulation in, in these four sectors, right? I don't take that to mean that you are ruling out other forms of regulation, but I wondered if efforts to just grow the population in these places that are losing people might be part of the solution. 
Let me respond to the first half of that question first, talking about differences between St. Louis and Denver, for example. So, of course, that's right. And we can't be monolithic about the ways in which economic trajectories of different cities, there are parts of this country that are not on the coasts that are doing well. I'll note that the city that we're all in, Nashville, is having a moment where it's really thriving right now. But our point is a more general one. And it's that there are these built-in structural advantages for certain key cities like New York and San Francisco right, and L.A. that make it very, very hard for other places to compete. So it's not as though there won't be thriving places outside the coasts. There are, of course, and there should be. Our observation is that there could be even more if there weren't these structural advantages built in. One example of that, I think, that we talk a little bit about in the paper and that Morgan referenced earlier is airline regulation and airline deregulation. One of the interesting things, I think, about the transportation sector and is connectivity matters a huge amount. And to the extent that you're in a city that loses a lot of airline capacity, for example, it's harder to get there. It's harder for people to have things there especially point-to-point service, may make it less likely that people will want to to travel to your city. In fact, we, we have some examples in the paper of cities that lost airline service in huge numbers. Not that they don't have airports still, but, you know, places like Memphis or Pittsburgh that used to have a lot more airline connectivity. And what's happened is organizations don't want to hold conferences there because it's hard for people to get there. That dries up economic activity, and that can lead to effectively a kind of downward spiral. And This is tied to how we think about the structure of airline service, which was something that was regulated in the Civil Aeronautic Board era through the mid-20th century until deregulation starting in the late 70s. So this is tied up the kind of where are routes going, who are the major carriers, how frequent are they, regulation of rates, all of these things are tied up together and can have these impacts economically, even with mid-sized cities. And so if you think about airline hub cities versus cities that lost a lot of airline service, there are interesting linkages there as well. So I totally agree with Chris, there's different cases in these different places. But one thing that we think is interesting is how some of these features of deregulation. I think antitrust and consolidation is another one, for example, where consolidation in headquarters, mergers that lead to consolidation, might mean that a mid-sized city does pretty well because it has the headquarters of a wide variety of merged entities that have all moved to those areas. One of the striking things in the literature, though, is that when you do have these mergers and then you have consolidation of headquarters, not only do you lose a lot of top-level and mid-senior kind of positions. Imagine this with a hypo of a bank. The, the hypothetical small bank of Middle Tennessee gets bought up by Bank of America. Well, they don't really need a new bank president and all of this kind of stuff. Bank of America already has all of that. And so you just have tellers and some mid-level managers, but none of the really senior people. When that happens, one thing that's striking in literature is that philanthropy also dries up in these places because it turns out small, mid-sized businesses headquarters matters for where their where their dollars are going to go in terms of supporting their community whether that's you know the little league team or the 4th of July or or whatever it is so we see problems with that as well and that can exist looking at these different cities and i think policy is part of that story just on your last point about immigration 
absolutely, we don't mean to say that these four are the only policy choices. We just think they're pretty severely under-acknowledged in the literature and in the policy debate over these questions. I think immigration and a wide variety of other things too. You know, we haven't talked about industrial policy either yet, which is, I think, a huge component of much more understood as having geographic effects. But so there are other, other policies that we readily acknowledge could be impactful in helping either specific mid-sized cities or more broadly thinking about geographic inequality. Now, one thing you argue in the paper is you say you're, you're not NIMBYs. I think there's actually a sentence that basically quoting the sentence says, we're not NIMBYs, but there's a, we call an elite libertarian, liberal and libertarian consensus on zoning reform. And you want to kind of qualify that a little bit. Can you say a little bit about what that consensus is, if you think it really is a consensus or maybe where it is a consensus and where it maybe isn't a consensus, and then why you think it's important to qualify that? Sure. So I think the consensus that we're referring to, and we do call it an elite consensus in the sense that this may not be the view of your average homeowner, even in superstar cities. We're talking about policymakers, scholars, think tanks. There's, a, I would say, an emerging consensus that one of the problems that we face as a country is that zoning is keeping people from being able to move to New York City. I mean, that's a, a rough cut at the description here. But the solution, if you think that the problem is that there's a spatial mismatch between labor supply and labor demand that's keeping people in Missouri from moving to New York, the solution is deregulatory. The solution is unlock zoning in New York so that housing supply can respond to this incredible demand. And in terms of zoning, our observation is really twofold. So one, at the level at which we've been talking, our suggestion is, look, instead of addressing this issue at the level of responding to the demand for housing in New York, let's see if we can make the rest of the country more competitive or other places more competitive so that there isn't so much acute pressure on housing in New York. But the other observation, sort of on its own terms within zoning, I should say not only are we you know, not NIMBYs, we're also all urbanists. I lived in New York for a long time. I love New York. I love the cities that we identify as superstar thriving cities. But our concern, and this is a cautious claim at this point, but our concern is part of the reason that these cities may be thriving right now is actually because they've become very good at land use regulation. And one concern is that the kinds of deregulatory initiatives that are being proposed might actually be problematic for places like New York. The operating assumption here is that a deregulating land use, deregulating zoning in New York is going to make New York better, is going to make New York thrive even more, is going to increase the agglomeration surplus in a place like New York. And we want to suggest, well, hold on a second. Let's at least be cautious about that claim as an empirical matter because, well, for two reasons. One, we notice that some of the revitalization of places like New York coincided with increased regulatory land use regulatory controls that in fact restricted new development. And two, we think that the dichotomy here is a little bit misleading because we worry that limiting New York City or other urban centers' ability to engage in land use regulation may simply push for private land use regulation. That is, consumers, housing consumers, 
generally strongly prefer the ability to control what happens in neighboring property. And if we hobble cities' ability to satisfy at least some of that demand, we worry it's going to push more people to suburbs where private land use regulations in the form of homeowners associations might become ascendant. And from our perspective, that would be a worse outcome on all sorts of dimensions. So I've got a couple of follow-ups here. So one is, you know, that just to be fair to the the deregulatory argument on the housing supply side, I think part of the argument is that people from Missouri, quote, want to live in New York and can't afford it. Another part, though, is that people who live in New York and would like to remain in New York and remain close to their family and the jobs that they like can't afford it, especially middle class and working class people. And so they end up moving to other places where they get more bang for buck. And that's a good deal for them in an economic sense, almost by definition. It may not be a good deal for them in a personal sense, but it's also a mixed bag for the places where they move. It strikes me as a non-obvious way to run a to sort of run a railroad. So the other thing that that leaves on the table is redistribution, right? Because economic productivity declines when people leave high productivity areas for low productivity, there's an opportunity to generate revenue off of their income that also disappears or, or declines. And then the idea being that that income tax could be redistributed to the Clevelands of the world. And, and I realize that's pushing us to a, a closer to a people based as opposed to a place based, arguably paradigm, but it would, you know, it would be redistributing it to places that need it as well. So I think it's a bit more mixed. And then I have another question, but I don't want to give you a compound. So I'd be interested to hear any thoughts you have on the redistributive dimension. I think the redistribution can be part of the story, but one of the things that I think there's different ways also to think about it. One way that I think people now are starting to talk a little bit more in the policy space, at least, and, and I'd be interested in Michelle's thoughts on this too, is in thinking about redistribution that isn't just focused on individuals, but is also focused on places. So can we create kind of policies that actually are about rebuilding communities and investing in communities in, again, the kind of more fulsome way that understands the interconnected nature of the different ecosystem that is a society and a community. One place where I've done some work where you see this is in debates over industrial policy and thinking about how do we invest particularly in jobs and in industry and technology and research that might have lots of different kinds of effects in a particular area. And in a way that would be redistributed because you are taking money from one place and you're, you might be investing it very seriously in another area. And I think for those of us in, in Tennessee, you know, you think about the Tennessee Valley Authority, the TVA as an example of kind of big industrial policy with serious infrastructure and energy and economic components to it that was really important for the New Deal era in terms of an active policy to try to move forward the South. And I would push that as a sort of redistributive policy in a sense, because it's effectively spending money in order to try to push forward some, some outcomes. But it's understood in geographic terms that will have an impact on individuals, but it's not directed directly to individuals. So I think there's an interesting way that that can be part of the story. I certainly agree with that. And I think you know we ought to be making major investments in, in places that need it. To me, that's a no-brainer. And that's something that I think you make a compelling argument for in the paper, not just fiscally, but also on a regulatory level, which is not something that's not something that's historically been as much of the conversation. The other piece, just briefly, that I wanted to circle back to was on HOAs. So overall, I would say the paper has a pro-regulatory kind of tilt in a thoughtful way, but it wants to dial up some regulatory levers across several domains, right? 
One reason that the paper is cautious about endorsing upzonings in superstar cities is because of the response that that's expected to trigger. By the way, I agree with that analysis that it probably would trigger more intense private land use regulations such as HOAs. Why not then take this step and say that there ought to be more regulation of the use of HOAs? California recently, for example, placed restrictions on HOA's abilities to ban renting. That's a terrific question. And I will say the California example of forbidding HOAs from enforcing single-family residential restrictions and forcing them to allow granny flats is quite remarkable and I think very, very promising. That regulatory change actually happened after we had written the draft of this paper. And I view it also as quite remarkable and quite California-specific. It is not clear to me that there's any political will to impose that kind of regulatory change on HOAs in other places, nor is it clear to me that that's actually going to survive legal challenge, interfering with these private contracts in this way. I think it should survive legal challenge, but it's not clear to me that it will. But absolutely, I think our point is exactly that. One response to our concern would be to increase the regulation of HOAs. But for political reality reasons, that wasn't something that we were embracing in this paper, but it's absolutely something that's consistent with our set of prescriptions and concerns. So Chris, you mentioned political will, and I'm curious if you can just comment a little bit about how politically viable the regulatory solutions that you are suggesting are just overall. Right. So you've done a great job convincing me that deregulation has had a huge impact on geographic inequality and that regulation itself has the capacity to mitigate geographic inequality. But I have a sense as a tax scholar, at least, that at least some of the reason why we've moved towards these market based approaches and incentives is because they end up being more politically palatable, particularly for people in some of these areas that are disadvantaged. So I'm curious to just hear you build out a little bit more on why you think your approaches can fly, should fly. And and who are likely to be the winners overall under your approach? The first thing that I would say is that I think you want to think about what is politically plausible, not in a narrow sense of what could be achievable today if there was a vote at this very second. And the reason for that partly is because we're scholars and part of our job is to talk about how we analyze situations and what different options might be. But I think part of the reason is because of how fast political change moves. So just look at a couple of the areas that we talk about in the paper, antitrust and trade. Five years ago, there was not a significant antitrust movement, anti-monopoly movement pushing forward to regulate, break up big tech companies or all of the other conglomerates in our country at the moment. Now there is. Now, does that mean that there will be kind of major shift in the next six months on antitrust or in the next one month or in the next one week? Maybe, maybe not. But the, the possibility has just really shifted dramatically in a very, very short period of time. I think a similar thing is true about trade. The views generally about trade and international economics have changed considerably in the last five years even among people who had a much more neoliberal bent a handful of years ago on international economic integration. So I think in a lot of places, you know, to the extent that people might think that some of these ideas are off the wall at the moment, Jack Balkan has written 
a great little blog post basically saying that ideas go from being off the wall to being on the wall extremely quickly in some cases. And I think that part of what we're hoping to do is get people to see that these are real policies we should be discussing and debating. And that might mean that these things go from being not at the center of a political debate to, to really part of it, maybe even very quickly. One of the things that I think politically, also just to get to the last part of your question, is that in many cases, I think that these kind of policies could actually be better than tax policies for political reasons. One is that a bunch of these policies are much more salient than doing things through the tax code, which is not something that people really notice often. It's often pretty complicated. It depends on the particular policy, but it can benefit people who are slightly farther up in the income spectrum and have a sense of how to use the tax code to get the full benefits out of it. A lot of the policies we're talking about are things that are publicly salient and show that government's on your side and can do things that, that support you and that therefore that might have some political upside for politicians who want to push forward on these ideas. One example to think about and that we reference in the paper is a kind of direct public provision of broadband internet. And just down the highway from us in Chattanooga, they have effectively a public option for broadband run by the Electric Power Board, which is their electric utility. And it is extremely fast and it is affordable. And what that means is that a lot of people use it, a lot of businesses use it. Chattanooga has seen increased growth and people recognize that this is something that government is doing for them and that is helpful for them. And I think that's been a real win, not just for people, but it's a win politically for people because it shows that we have a city government that's on our side and that works for us. And so I think there's a lot of benefits if politicians wanted to get out there and actually start making these arguments. So what relative role do you think regulation should play relative to some of these other solutions that have at least in the near term been favored, uh, both as policies actually get enacted and arguably dominant in the literature as well. You talk about zoning and you talk about tax incentives, and you've definitely made a case that these are not complete solutions. They're not complete solutions. I think that probably a lot of people who even support these policies would agree with that, that regulation should have some role. Do you view regulation as something that really should be the primary tool, or is it one in a but possible tools that can be used for these types of problems. This is Morgan. I think we certainly view it as one in a bucket. And as Chris alluded to earlier, we don't see this as either monolithic, either as a cause of growing regional inequality or as a solution to our geographic inequality problem. However, I do want to say one thing about how this is different because cross-subsidies within infrastructural systems, which is largely what we're talking about, have an important dynamic effect. They have a dynamic effect in the sense that if you're afraid that your railroad line through which you would ship your products to market might disappear because it's no longer economical for the railroad, then you're not going to invest in the business in that. And so there's a sense in which increased permanence or a commitment to permanence of infrastructural resources can be a dynamic source of growth and economic development and investment of capital across geographic space. And importantly, one of the things that was really significant, and I think is under-recognized in the literature about this, uh, Richard Poser has written about it a little bit, but I think he didn't flesh it out quite as much as he should have or, or could have, is that when you cross-subsidize in this way, you take these decisions out of annual legislative appropriations. And it becomes a self-contained system in which resources are being, in effect, an excise tax on users in dense areas in order to cross-subsidize users in more remote locales. 
That's the way the post office worked since 1792 from the very beginning. And when you don't have to do this through annual legislative appropriation, there's more of a built-in commitment to permanence because you don't need the legislators to reapprove it every year. And so when you build a system like this, it tends to be more durable. Now, that doesn't mean it's permanently durable, as we saw through deregulation, but there's a sense in which you can rely on it more than you might rely on an annual reappropriation of funds for uh, for different locations or people. And there's a, there's a sense in which this system, these infrastructural systems, operate as systems in ways that a lot of the other solutions don't. It's a conversation for another day, but I would love to hear thoughts maybe on how to ensure if the virtue of the type of system that you're positing, the internal cross-subsidization removed from the political process, if that's a virtue, kind of how to make sure it stays a virtue and doesn't become a vice. Something that keeps coming up in my own research is how removing the highway funding process from the political process or substantially detaching it in multi-year appropriations led to basically a one-way ratchet of ever-widening highways, more and more money spent on highways as opposed to other forms of surface transportation and also more of a general taxpayer subsidy as opposed to a user fee model over time. You know, I think the post office is a great counterexample, right? And that's important. We should think about that. I don't know how to balance these things, but I thought this was a really important contribution in the paper. Sensitivity to the political dimension, well as the geographic dimension, in addition to the economic dimension. Thanks. One thing I would say that I think we were trying to do in the paper, which especially for the scholars out there listening might be of interest, is really try to integrate those other components, not just the kind of dynamic incentive effects in terms of economic policy, but also the effects in how it shapes politics and our political geography. And often I think some of these conversations are disconnected or are separated out. And you know, we think that it's helpful to try to bring these things together to see how policy changes can actually shape across these different areas. So we hope that that's in some ways an inspiration or, or model for others in a way that you can try to integrate these different kinds of impacts when doing a study on you know, one particular area of regulation. Great. So I think it's time now to move into our next segment called Appendices, where we each go around in round-robin format and offer a recommendation for our listeners. Jeff, what's your appendix for this week? Thanks, Rick. So my appendix for this week actually dovetails really nicely with the um, paper we discussed this week. Today, we talked a lot about the potential political benefits from more balanced growth across regions. The paper I want to highlight today is work by Mike Zabeck, who's an economist at the Federal Reserve Board. And his work highlights the importance of what he calls local ties, which are essentially like, you know, friends or family who live close to you. And what he documents is that someone who lives in an economically depressed place was probably born there to a much greater degree than, you know, a superstar city, say. And so these are people who live in a place they were born. They live close to their parents, close to their grandparents, close to their cousins, close to friends. A place that has a lot lot of workers with these local ties has migration responses that are substantially lower compared with other places. And so what Mike does in this paper is nicely tease out what are the implications of this fact for thinking about place-based policy. And as you can imagine, like, you know, a place that has a lot of people with local ties, that place is going to have relatively muted migration responses when government decides to, say, subsidize that place. It points to another factor that I think can amplify kind of what are the potential benefits to helping struggling places. Because we do have a lot of people who do value local ties, who do value having family and friends close by. That's the paper, Local Ties and Spatial Equilibrium by Mike Zabeck. 
Great. I also have an appendix that dovetails with this week's paper, and that is the book Why Cities Lose, The Deep Roots of the Urban-Rural Divide by Jonathan Rodden, who's a political scientist at Stanford. This is a great book. I really enjoyed it. The basic insight, I would say, is that as the authors of today's paper note, our political system builds in a lot of geographic kind of dimensions, right, that create difficulties and opportunities for reform. The, the Senate, the Electoral College, you know, these are kind of the maybe the most salient examples. Something that Rodden talks about, and it's interesting to me that he's a political scientist, not an economist, is that there's another level at which this happens, which is residential self-sorting. And the way that that combines into those political structures, not just the Senate and the, the Electoral College, but also our system of single member, first past the post, winner take all representation, and the way that our districts are drawn such that areas that have density levels of about a thousand people per square mile or higher are almost uniformly a majority Democrat in the US. And so what that does when you combine that with geographically contiguous districts that have that basic structure is representation, for example, at the state legislative level that is overwhelmingly lopsided towards the Republican Party. Some of that, of course, is gerrymandering, but he goes through some, to me, persuasive quantitative analyses that show that a lot of the effect is attributable to self-sorting. Uh, he uses an interesting instrument, which is location of 19th century rail lines. And his view basically is that that's what explains why not just Philadelphia, but like Reading, Pennsylvania, Scranton, Pennsylvania are democratic towns. And then exurbs that were never part of any kind of rail system are not because if you were a rail town, then you had an industry uh, and you may have had higher rates of unionization and urban socialization and so on. It's a really interesting paper. And the thing I like about it is, is how it kind of brings together these different pieces of politics, economics, and geography. And that, I think, is also a, a really important contribution of today's paper um, by talking about these regulatory structures, not just in the abstract or in some sort of economic efficiency analysis, but uh, through the lens of, our, of the constraints and opportunities of our political system. Michelle, what's your appendix for this week? Sure. So I wanted to just take a minute to point listeners towards an article that I have forthcoming in the tax law review called How Place-Based Tax Incentives Can Reduce Geographic Inequality. You know, our talk today was focused on the regulatory solutions and the role that regulation can play in addressing these problems. My paper takes a different approach and is kind of looking at the tax-based approach and it really dives deep into the limitations of that approach as, as well as some of the untapped potential. I think place-based tax incentives have been used for decades to, to target investments to areas that are experiencing some form of economic disadvantage. And the results have been mixed. There's been a lot of research on the impact of these tax incentive programs, and some of it's encouraging, but a lot of it really isn't. And so the goal of this paper was to dive into the role that tax incentives can play in addressing geographic inequality, um, what aspects of geographic inequality they may be best positioned to address and what might be better left to other other types of legal tools. So I would point you towards that one as a supplement, I think, to the very excellent research project that we talked about here today. Great. And how about Chris? What's your appendix for this week? Sure. So my appendix is designed to burnish our credentials as not NIMBYs. And I'm going to point us to Neighborhood Defenders by Catherine Einstein, David Glick, and Maxwell Palmer. And this book 
really takes a pretty extraordinarily granular look at who's participating in land use decision making on the ground and observing the outsized influence of a very small number of people and a lot of land use regulations and the ways in which these so-called neighborhood defenders leverage control over land use to delay projects, to limit development, and to protect a, a neighborhood. And I think the book is very well done. It's a, just a terrific sort of expose of these local dynamics that are often underappreciated. And the way it relates to our work is just to point out that even though our observations are that we should focus on these sort of macro level regulatory changes, we want to acknowledge there's absolutely uh, room for opportunity to increase density in a lot of places in ways that will benefit society as well. So we do not want to come across as being anti-growth or anti-development in these cities, but simply to recognize that there are these other dynamics at play as well. Great. Morgan, what's your appendix for this week? I did not prepare an appendix, Greg. Okay. See me after class. Uh, Ganesh, what about you? Thanks, Greg. I'd like to mention a book that came out last year called Jumpstarting America by Jonathan Gruber and Simon Johnson. What they do in this book is identify 100 plus mid-sized cities, not the superstars, in which investment in them could actually make a huge difference for jumpstarting those cities and having a lot of spillover effects on the regions around them. In large case, these are places that have universities where you could invest in R&D that would create spillover jobs and innovation and lots of other things. It's a really terrific read and shows how industrial policy through the kind of investment, so a component we didn't talk as much about today, but how that could be a huge part of really creating a lot more growth in a whole bunch of different places around the country. Thanks. Well, thanks everybody for coming on the show today. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. And special thanks to uh, Michelle for coming on as our guest co-host. We are Densely Speaking. Thank you for listening. Thank you to our guests on today's show, Ganesh Tataraman, Morgan Ricks, and Chris Serkin, all professors at Vanderbilt Law School. Thank you to our co-host, Michelle Laser, professor at the University of Illinois Law School. Thank you to Scholar Pals, our producer. Check the show notes for links to the articles discussed on today's show. You can follow us on Twitter at Densely Speaking and let us know what you think of the show. You can also follow us on our personal accounts. I am at Greg underscore Shill. Jeff is at Jeff R. Lynn. Ganesh is at Ganesh Harriman. Morgan's at, at Morgan Ricks One. And Michelle Laser is this has got to be one of the better Twitter handles I've seen. Laser Tax, L-A-Y-S-E-R Tax. Chris is a model to us all and avoids Twitter. If you don't already, please subscribe to Densely Speaking wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a second to rate and review the show as well. It helps other folks find this new podcast. The views expressed on today's show are those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, the Federal Reserve System, or any of the other institutions with which the hosts or guests are affiliated.